Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast. Every week we look at the technologies behind the energy news and we review this week's issue of Rethink Energy. I'm Peter White and I'm joined by hydrogen analyst Harry Morgan. Hello. Solar analyst Andrew Swantanar. Hello there. And our publisher Simon Thompson. Hello. On the show today we'll be looking at the outcome of the Australian election and what it will mean for the country's climate policies. We'll also look at how Hyundai is planning to build a car factory in the USA. And we'll be considering what is it Longi might have up its sleeve when it says it will reveal a new solar technology in Q3. And as usual, we'll ask Simon what caught his eyes this week. First off, let's see if the Australian election will make any difference to the world at all, Harry. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, Peter, as well, because um, obviously it's a, it's a new um, it's a new prime minister for Australia. We've got um, Anthony Albanese in, in uh, instead of Scott Morrison, which is, from many climate activists' uh, point of view, a, a really good thing. I think, but rather than a good thing to see Anthony Albanese coming in, I think it's a good thing that Scott Morrison's gone. Um, he's famously very um, reluctant to uh, to enforce any policies that would really accelerate his country's bid to reach net zero emissions. I mean, they, he announced the net, uh, the country's net zero emissions by 2050 target, sort of as a last resort ahead of COP, the COP26 negotiations in, in November. But even then, that that goal um, wasn't enshrined in law. Uh, and there's actually been very, very few measures in, play, uh, in place that will, will help them get there. I mean, if you look at the government's plan at the moment, uh, or the previous government's plan, they're, they're only aiming to reduce emissions by between 26 and 28% by 2005 levels. And to be honest, and that's by 2030, and by, we're already, and to be honest, we're already pretty much there in terms of Australia. Uh, and they're actually on track to reach between sort of 30% and 35% reduction in CO2 emissions by 2030. So really, the sort of country itself is flying ahead of its government ambitions. And that's been really being led by industry and sort of individual states. Uh, and their own plans. So we wonder if this is going to be another Joe Biden, you know, where Joe Biden has, uh, was selected as the candidate for the presidency based on not being too strident on the green front because it didn't want to scare off traditional uh, voters. And then he's virtually had a hung uh, government the whole time and been unable to push things through because some of his own people refused to vote for his policies. The same could happen if they don't get um, a uh, an outright majority, is as as the election over yet? Or do we know if they actually got the any of the last four seats? No, so all of those last four seats are still up for grabs. Um, they are still being counted. I think in terms of the, the votes, Labour ahead in one of them, but um, the, the Liberals uh, are currently ahead in the other three. But obviously, though. I mean, it, it, those can all change um, pretty rapidly. Um, if you're looking at the the analysis of them across across the papers, then they they're calling it too close to call in those in those individual um, constituencies. So it will it will be interesting to see whether or not Labour do achieve a majority, and they probably will if they want to actually push forward any climate ambition. I personally think that the uh, the Labour government have greater climate ambitions than they're letting on i think they probably they probably played it down of some, to, they played it down to some extent to keep voters happy i mean if you look back to their 2019 election where they obviously lost uh, a lot of that was due to sort of losing voters in, in the coal mining heartlands of the country uh, obviously australia is a huge exporter of coal uh, it's the world's largest exporter of coal actually um, and it's the 10th largest exporter of natural gas so it's, it's a huge part of the country's economy and suddenly saying we're going to we're going to shutter this side is obviously going to be 
a huge number of votes lost in terms of the, the jobs in those industries and people who know people who are working in those industries. So it's it is it makes sense to to not actually mention coal. Uh, directly within in the manifesto and i think that's what they've done really they've not while they've been quite clear on reducing emissions and they have um, proposed a 43 percent cut in emissions which is slightly less ambitious than the 45 percent they proposed in 2016 and 2019 elections they haven't really said anything um specifically about phasing out coal and they have actually kept the door open really to to back new coal mines if they theoretically stack up environmentally and commercially by 2050 which of course they won't but it obviously can still allow labor to pull in voters from from those coal uh, coal mining places so the, the, the key thing with all this is that the signal to the world and to the investors at large throughout australia is get stuck into renewable energy this government is not going to do anything to harm you and that's what we got in america and we saw an acceleration, even though m most uh, renewables companies had ignored um, uh, President Trump's uh, resistance and his constant outbreaks of uh, uh, against wind, wind farms, and they just carried on throughout his tenure. But really, when Joe Biden came along, I mean, the key thing was that literally a month after he was elected, General Motors said they would be all electric by 2035. Now, you, you know, there isn't a major Australian um, car maker um, that is going to trigger that. But there'll be other things in mining uh, and elsewhere, which, you know, the comfort of having a, a government that's not against you will make their plans more concrete and probably be brought forward. So it is a good thing. But a better thing would be if there is a hung government and they have to have a, uh, a um, coalition with the Green Party, because then they can say it's not our fault that we're killing all the coal jobs, you know, it's a result of the coalition. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that would be a, a really good scenario. And the Greens have made huge, huge gains in, in this last election. And I think that's, that's obviously a really positive sign. And as you said, and we as we wrote back in 2019, this would be the first election where climate really did to, like have a significant effect on the needle. Obviously, it's had an effect in, in the past, but I think this is one where it probably has tipped the balance between in the results. I, I'm What I'm curious about is, do you think um, that the Labour election will restore growth to investment in renewable energy? Because it has been declining. Yeah, it has been declining. But if you look at the the Powering Australia plan that they they put very central to their manifesto, um, there's a huge amount of investment. I think something like fourteen billion dollars solely earmarked to modernise the grid, which has obviously been the big bottleneck in terms of um, investment in Australia. There's been um, transmission issues that basically meant you can't build the renewable energy projects in the heartlands that, that they'd want to. What I think, and I think this is how uh, Australia will slowly uh, push its climate agenda forward, is it will really back these huge projects that we're seeing proposed um, for the for the centre of Australia, really. Obviously, there's a huge potential there to export green ammonia, green hydrogen, and to produce the metals we need for clean technologies um, in a clean way. Um, with uh, using renewable energy to do that. So with uh, the Australian government backing these projects, creating jobs in those industries, you'll have, and as the coal industry s starts to sort of decay, you'll see them training um, workers from those industries to work in uh, clean, uh, clean energy, and that will happen slowly. And before you know it, these people will be working in clean hydrogen and the, and, uh, the Labour Party won't have to be pushing an ambitious climate agenda uh, and ha won't have to worry about talking about coal going out the window because the people were working in, in new industries. I actually know a German who used to work in a coal plant and then he had to move to a gas plant 
And then he had to move to a solar installer business. So he ended up being, feeling rather confused and annoyed, but you know, they, there you have it. So, and, and how much of this um, would, would change if instead of just Labour's um, repairing Australia plan, you also had the Greens as a coalition partner? I'm not. I'm not sure specifically what uh, what the Greens have um, have pledged in terms of uh, their climate goals. I know they're looking for obviously a significantly higher share of renewables in the energy mix than uh, the Labour government, and they will be being much more hard on phasing out coal. I think that's where the difference lies. Um, is is being hard on uh, on fossil fuels together? I think they it, it just puts more it, it just brings more votes in to actually push the push that agenda through. And I think if you were actually looking at the climate agenda. Getting a Labour government in, even if it is a minority, doesn't really matter if the Greens are going to be voting for the same climate agenda. So it's... Um, oh, I think oh, so you re- could actually re- have a minority government, but it would still govern like a majority on these issues. On the climate issues, for yeah. sure, yes. And I think that and that obviously is a real strength for the country. And I think we'll, we'll see good economic policy as well pushed through, because which will see these, these projects really facilitated as well. I think Australia really, while it has been limited in its renewable energy development and climate ambition so far, I think it's arguably the country that's got the most potential for building a renewable energy industry beyond its means and be able to export to the rest of the world. So I think this is where we'll start to see that come into fruition. Yeah, the, the number is like 850 gigawatts of solar and presumably a lot of wind by 2050 to power all of those electrolyzers, which would be like um, at least 10, 10% of the world's electrolyzers potentially in Australia. And maybe that's too much, but... That's what I think could happen. I mean, you, no, you said it's too much. I think they could, could reach that. I, I don't mm. see. I mean, the, the lack of political resistance, the availability of investment, the fact that entrepreneurs have, uh, are, are attacking it and finding that they're not getting Scott Morrison's government in their face uh, and privilege going to the coal mines, all of that bodes well for, for that being um, a huge exporter of uh, energy. And just something I wanted to mention, because we're talking about the Greens. There's also a lot of uh, independence seats that the independent vote actually grew by a factor of half again this election. And apparently a lot of them are called teal independents and they are they have a climate change agenda in, in many cases. The green faction in the in the new parliament could include those as well. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting movement, this whole teal, the teal party agenda, really. And I think it's just coming from a, a global sort of distrust in politics, especially in uh, developed economies. I think it's something that we'll start to see play a role in other countries as well. So probably maybe maybe not the US and, and potentially not the UK where it is. Very well, it's, it's easier here because we have the we have a ranked choice voting system in Australia. Yes, exactly. But I think it's, it's a really interesting movement. Um, and I think it will ha- it'll be really interesting to see how that dynamic affects climate policy. Just as a footnote, Harry, you mentioned in your article about Fortescue Metals Group, and we've written a a lot about them uh, over the last year. How influential do you think Fortescue is in in the renewable energy kind of landscape? Fortescue's really changed their persona, I guess, uh, in the Australian landscape. Obviously, they've been a huge metals group uh, for years. They've been one of the largest exporters of iron uh, in the world, really. Um, And we're looking at them from the perspective of both trying to clean up their own operations and really, really pioneering the movement towards green hydrogen. Uh, Andrew Forrest, or Twiggy Forrest, as he's known, Mm. has has been very clear that it's going to be green hydrogen over blue hydrogen, something we, we... vehemently agree with uh, rethink energy i think in terms of his sway in 
in Australian politics and in, in Australian economics, I think it's becoming larger to the extent that he's he is trying to pioneer this industry and he will receive a lot of support for doing so. Um, he's being very clear and very ambitious with his projects. Uh, he's not fiddling around with pilot projects of only a few megawatts. He's going he's going straight for the throat, really, in terms of this industry. And I think that's creating a lot of confidence and a lot of excitement around uh, the green hydrogen industry in Australia. And obviously, it's bringing in a lot of excitement around the idea of these huge new wind and solar complexes. Uh, um, and Fortescue has a revenue of only over $10 billion. And I think the, the the scale that he's been talking about is in the hundreds of gigawatts. Yeah, and I, I think it, it, it's obviously ambitious, um, but it's I personally haven't seen a, com- uh, a company with similar level of ambition, and it's it will be exciting to see how they progress. I think the the, ex- the exciting thing about the projects that we've seen, um, like the, the renewable energy hubs in Australia, is they can circumnavigate the grid issues, um, especially if you're producing green ammonia, green hydrogen on site. Uh, you don't need to be reliant on grid electricity, so you can just produce the you can produce the hydrogen there, and then you can ship it. You don't need to worry about well, there's not enough grid transmission capacity to to move the electricity to South Australia. Um, yeah, which, am I right in thinking that Australia's sheer size actually means it does have a problem having a national grid with these variable renewables and all these long transmission lines, and that therefore it does prefer to have distributed and hydrogen. They do have a national electricity grid, and that's been, um, again, a key part of the Labour government strategy. But the national electricity grid only provides around 80% of the country's electricity, uh, or only houses around 80% of the country's electricity capacity. And that largely also includes the rooftop solar in the country as well, which I think is on around one in six households at the moment, which is a significant number when you when you think about it. Um, hmm. Actually, come to the- think of it, something Labour's already been doing at the state level in New South Wales and probably Victoria as well, is um, these renewable energy zones. And I think the big thing there was uh, making sure that they would actually build the grid capacity for utility-scale wind and solar. So they'll probably expand that a bit, but the geographical problem is still there. I don't know that there is a geographical problem. If you map the population of Australia uh, by population density, it's a very thin line around the edge of uh, of parts of the country. Yes, you, you might need quite long distances broached where there's no uh, local spur coming off of, of the grid, but um, that's true in any country. I, I think mean, once you've got these renewable energy hubs and you can dot them sort of on the edge of these states and you can have offshore wind as well, I think realistically you can segment the country uh, and the case for long distance transmission from state to state starts to become smaller and i don't think you need these these massive transmission cables what i think it will create is it will create this area in the middle of australia where you don't as i've said you don't need the, you don't need the transmission but you've got renewable energy projects there anyway producing green hydrogen green ammonia and you're also you're using those projects to power the mining in that area of the country places like the pilbara region so that you've actually got clean energy hubs which are then really powering australia's export economy they do like a big project in Australia. That's that's a only slightly worrying thing. Is they they like they just like scale and they like projects, and I believe that the winners in the the kind of new economy really need to build scale by building factories which churn out the best technology in vast quantities, and, and there's some of that in Australia, but um, I think most of that will be left to uh, perhaps some of the other developed countries. Um, but that could be a quid pro quo with uh, countries like Japan. Anyway, moving on. So I was surprised this week, everyone was surprised, um, when uh, a South Korean car maker, uh, Hyundai, small small car maker in both senses of the word, it's not that big, uh, sells about 3.6 million cars a year, owns Kia, 
that makes small cars. Important that small car companies uh, move to electric vehicles. They announced this week that they, um, I mean, they've always said that they are in favour of electric vehicles, but they don't make that many. Only about 5% of sales have been EVs. And they're going to put an EV factory in Georgia in the US. They'll spend um, six billion, roughly $6 billion on that. And they've declared a kind of $17 billion transition uh, fund spent between now and 2030, which, uh, let's face it, isn't, it's only about $2 billion a year. Um, and they're going to rejuvenate their product line with 17 new battery electric models. Now, if those continue to be small uh, cars, um, they're going to be one of the first companies that's going to have to broach the issue of um, range uh, and uh, and size, uh, keeping the, and price. You know, keep it un, keep certainly under twenty five thousand dollars would be um, a whole chunk of their car delivery. But I mean, uh, this could be seen lots of ways. Number one is it's taken it two years to build a build a supply chain up so they can actually announce these factories. It just finished building a factory in Indonesia uh, where, of all things, it's going to make electric vehicles. They don't, won't be selling them in Indonesia. They'll be selling them all over Southeast Asia. Um, but it, it's um, it's taken a while to build the supply chain because it wasn't a believer in electric vehicles, not, not really. And here it is going to America where everybody is going to have trouble making enough batteries, supplying enough batteries without importing them from China. And they just get, they're going to make the problem worse, but they see an opportunity to be one of the first small car companies in the in the States. They probably won't be pushing their, their smaller brands. Uh, they do have some larger cars, SUVs. So um, they'll probably go with those in the States first. But um, at least, you know, they're, they're adding more fuel to the fire. So somebody else is coming to America bringing electric vehicles, which is all good uh, and, and and yet yet another convert although albeit two and a half years after um, president biden was elected uh, and after that fateful announcement from general motors another three to four million cars heading towards electric electrification which which were almost entirely uh, internal combustion engine hyundai isn't really noted for its pioneering spirit it's more of a, a copycat c- company always has been in, in cars and vehicles. So um, do, do you think the fact that... Looking it... like a true British driver. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have enough power. They don't have enough power. They can't get up the hills. The the, uh, the air conditioning turns off when you drive up a hill. But they're cheap. Yes, they have exactly. Six-year warranties. They are the poor man's car. So what's the what's the, 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 the lesson of this event? Is it just a, another when to be chalked up for electric vehicles yeah i mean i think it's it's i don't think it was resistance i think i think what happens is someone declares like we're going all in on electric and then everyone else says right let's let's see if we can do that and then by the time they've got an engineering team together and they've planned what it is they're actually going to design and they've tried to build a supply chain everything's gone and everything's too expensive they haven't got any batteries. They can't. They can't get the uh, drive chain, and and they have to sit there and go, oh, this is a problem. Uh, I think it's just taken two years. And I think we'll we continually see. I mean, we saw early early twenty twenty all the way through twenty twenty. Lots of people 
saying, yeah, we're all in on electric vehicles. Yeah, we are as well, and us. But um, this is a, it's a strange company. It's got um, it's only got sells about ten percent of its cars in its home country. It's it's a truly international company, and it fulfills that thing of being the poor. I mean, many of its brands are the poor man's uh, car. Not all of them. I think this Ionic uh, it uh, and its Ionic Five and the Crater SUV are both quite large cars, and I think they're, uh, but their ones are going to be made in Indonesia for the rest of Asia. So, I mean, maybe they'll they'll make the mistake of trying to move up into the luxury car market where there's more profit. But what I hope they'll do is also bring the small end of the market with them and be one of the first companies to get to the $25,000 barrier. Now we know that Tesla has no interest in uh, heading for the below $25,000 because Elon Musk says, well, if a car drives itself, then travel becomes much cheaper, so I don't have to produce a $25,000 car, which is a major cop-out for all the people who invested in him, believing that he was going to. Is he, someone else has got to. Is Hyundai, did they say anything about the type of battery that they're going to use? Is it lithium-ion? Oh, they always use, yeah, they'll use lithium-ion batteries, no question. I mean, I don't think anyone, apart from um, small out, small uh, objections to it in India, uh, are going to do anything um, other than lithium-ion in, in a car. Um, the big problem that we've got is the um, the fact that America was five years too late because of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So there's this big gap in American car manufacturing. who They can't get factories built fast enough. Uh, and economically enough, I mean, you, if you build three factories at once, you're making all the same mistakes at all three factories. You've got to build one after the other after the other so that you don't make the same mistakes twice. You've got to do it economically. And that means the, the ramp-up speed is is going to take time. And, you, and everyone's trying to partner with um, mostly uh, Korean and Japanese uh, um, battery makers. But there's not enough. And, and to get enough batteries... I mean, Tesla has got a good solution. Tesla um, um, uh, is working with Panasonic on its, um, is it the 4680 um, battery that it's designed itself? And previously it's worked with um, a a couple of other uh, Korean and Japanese companies, but it doesn't want to work with Chinese companies. But in Tesla Shanghai, it uses... um, um, batteries from CATL, which are LFP, which are notoriously less powerful, about 60-70% of the range. But they're safe, and they're cheap, and they don't rely on um, cobalt. (coughs) Yeah, I I mean, they haven't said much about... um, I I, I mean, I haven't looked up what what, uh, um, uh, Hyundai and Kia use. But I think they're off-the-shelf batteries, I, I don't, and I think they're, they're, they're NMC off-the-shelf uh, bulk standard batteries. But well, they might be LFP. I mean, and they might be a combination of both. Most manufacturers have a combination of both. There's another piece that we wrote this week, um, which, which talks about um, uh, LG uh, uh, LG Energy Solution, um, and, it, and it's heading for LFP in its home batteries but this is purely because um it's it's had an outbreak of fires i mean in everything it does i mean lg energy solution i think would be the company i would try to avoid the most it just happens that they've partnered with um 
General Motors and had a recall on their cars. They're now partnering with uh, Stellantis. Haven't yet had a recall on their cars, but it's only a matter of time. They've tried to, and they've had a lot of home battery fires uh, that have damaged buildings. And it's funny, it's disingenuous. They show you little pictures on their website of people having these batteries in their kitchen. You'd be insane to have one of these batteries in your kitchen. Yeah, and in your garage. Yeah, outs on the outside wall, two feet away, would be would make more sense because um they've they've got a terrible track record. What they're trying to do is is shift to um to use more aluminium, to to use a nickel cobalt aluminium battery. Uh, again, you know, less of the more energy density than LFP, but they're using LFP in their um in in their home batteries and their car batteries they're shifting to nca but i think if you set up an r&d factory around lfp as catl has done you find that you can get more out of them and you can you know redesign the cathode with some clever engineering and suddenly it's not half as bad a problem as you thought so um i don't know i i, I suspect that everybody's heading for LFP outside of America, but where you need to replace gas, gas guzzlers that, that, and, and, and have real long range, I think you we're stuck with NCM cathodes for a while. Um, that was just an interesting... It just caught everyone by surprise that they were... Uh, um, so, Andrew, you wrote a quite confusing story about Longi, mostly out of respect for the fact that they are, um, they're one of the biggest... And they've promised some kind of big reveal in Q3. Have you got any closer to what it is? Yeah. So the the interesting part of the story I wrote about Longi is that they are uh, the world's largest solar manufacturer. So I should really write about them more. And they have said that they have they have independently developed new high efficiency cell technology, formed an independent cell technology route, and made breakthroughs in key technical processes with a new product to be released in Q3. And it, it sounds very fascinating and interesting. Um, and I have I have ideas about what it could be, but sadly I just don't know. So uh, that's the annoying part. When you say say cell, it's not a, it's not a battery cell. This is a solar cell. It's a solar cell. The thing about Longi is, um, you know, a company saying, "Oh, we get, we've developed a new technology that we're going to release, and it's it's really great, but we're not telling you about it." I mean, that's not necessarily worth discussing usually but it's longy they're the biggest and they have they spent 660 million on r d in 2021 i think that's quite a lot uh so, so far in 2021 and, and 2022 they've been a big leader in heterojunction i don't think they're as quite as advanced as maya burger but among the the really big companies they, they seem to be very much the most advanced heterojunction supplier and heterojunction is the the big new thing the most advanced uh, solar technology that's actually going to exist at scale guaranteed in just a few years well then so, that's where it must be i mean it sounds to me like uh you know they once we get up to 25 25 and a half percent of the energy that hits a, a solar panel being converted into electricity um and that's what heterojunction takes us to yes. and past uh, and and there might be more growth in that and there might be another couple of percent growth over the next five or six years i think that that means that the amount of dollars you can get per panel just goes up because the amount of energy you're getting per panel goes up. And and I think that's what everyone searches for. Sell the, sell the same thing for more money or you know, similar manufacturing costs for more money. Yeah. Um, and I was I was writing the article pointing towards this, oh, it must be heterojunction. But then I, I saw this report that, oh, we spoke uh, by, by some 
news site saying, oh, we spoke to Longhi and they told us that it wasn't heterojunction, which is just baffling. So maybe this 660 <laughs> million R&D is, is going to produce a sudden perovskite tandem. Maybe perovskites will suddenly return to actually being approximate uh, commercialized. There's no real evidence that Longhi's spent a lot of money on perovskite, is there? No, there isn't. Not not at scale. There, there hasn't been a kind of lead up that would suggest they actually have it ready. So that's why I'm quite uh, surprised. Maybe it will be a, a new silicon technology. Uh, they, they did tell us that it will be um, geared towards uh, the high to mid range distributed solar Right. So I think that suggests it's high efficiency, of course, otherwise my bother. Uh, high efficiency, but maybe they've gone just gone back into their supply chain and said, where can we take out a bit of silver? Where can we take out a bit of copper? Where can we make the, the polysilicon thinner? I, th- I think those are the types of things that if you, if you end up making that, the thing cheaper and selling it for the, the same price or slightly more, you end up making a lot more profit. I think that's where this, that's what everyone's focused on at the moment because of the high costs of all the, uh, components in solar right now. Yeah, and, and like I mentioned in the article, um, Risen Energy is uh, talking about its heterojunction product as being low carbon intensity. And you, you also look at this product and it's got a thickness of, of the wafer of only 120 microns. And normally the thickness in silicon wafers was 175 microns. Uh, and it's declined to 160 under the price pressure of polysilicon. So taking it down to 120, you lose 25% of the electricity you need for that to, to make it. And uh, that electricity largely comes from coal in China's provinces where uh, where the polysilicon factories are. As long as it doesn't produce less electricity, that's not a bad plan. I, I do think it's, it's a bit more than just marginal efficiencies. I think maybe maybe they've come up with a new silicon technology that is sort of a category on par with Topcon or Monoperk or IBC and Heterojunction. But they Maybe take a long term to establish those, those, those agreed standards. And they take a long time. They take five, six, seven years. They can't just revolutionize the market overnight and take it off in another direction, even Longi. Uh, and I think that the, the fact that it's pre-announcing it is, um, is also um, a bit of a concern. Uh, everyone wants to pre If you pre-announce products, you're promising the earth, but and, and you're saying it's all right. Wait, uh, I, I've got something good coming, and you just you stop people from uh, committing their expenditure until they've seen what it is. So they're saying Q3. Um, that might be the tail end of Q3. That means that they're, they're slowing the market down, and that, that's a signal they're sending to the market. Um, they are shrewd enough to be market manipulators as well. So I'm not. I'm always suspicious when someone pre-announces without giving any details. It comes from, um, it's what IBM used to do with its mainframes. You've got a mainframe, it's a quarter of the size and half the price, um, needs a lot less power. It's coming out in two years. You know, and then they and they would give it a name. And they hadn't invented half the technology. And so the market froze. And it gave them two years R&D to catch up. It was uh, it's a classic uh, market manipulation. So always look out for that with any, any company that has more than or close to 10% of a market. Not that I'm accusing Longy of anything, you understand. Um, Simon, what, 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 uh, you read the issue by now. Um, what, what did you, uh, what grabbed your attention? A f- fabulous issue as well. Uh, uh, congratulations to the writers this week. It's really good. And it was in the world of renewables. It's it's about the wind turbine markets. Siemens Energy is uh, has launched a bid 
to gain uh, a, a, an overall control of Siemens Gamesa. Um, and it's so um, why were so why is why are all these moves going on in the wind turbine market? Well, the wind turbine market at the moment's in it's not probably not in the best state if you're if you're looking at it objectively. Um, the the industry, especially sort of the turbine suppliers, have been sort of plagued by obviously these unexpected um, price increases across their commodities. So steel being the obvious one. Um, so their actual delivery um, cost of those turbines is pretty high. Um, the problem with wind turbine uh, delivery as well is that often when you're signing a supply contract, you sign it several years ahead of time. So a lot of the deliveries that they're going for now in terms of material turbines um, are based on pricing assumptions that were made two years ago, obviously when prices were still were, were way lower than they are now, probably around half. Um, so the, the margin they've got on these turbines is incredibly low. And we've seen a lot of them actually selling turbines for a loss on the premise that they can make up the difference if they're also part of the sort of 25 years sort of supply and service contracts associated with those turbines um siemens energy taking over seems gamisa i think is it's an interesting move because it comes at a time obviously when the wind turbine market's not in the best state but it also comes at a time when the wind industry it's probably is arguably one of the biggest growth areas for siemens energy apart from maybe their electrolyzer business and I think I think realistically, it just makes sense from an organisational point of view. At the moment, they they're in around sixty seven percent in the company um, in the in the venture team, Sumisa. Uh, and I think taking that to one hundred percent just makes it easier to make those those hard decisions on what's going to happen without sort of the consent of a larger range of shareholders. So I think that's going to be key to them transforming the company and making it a, a higher margin business again. Is there anything to do with uh, a couple of weeks ago? We were talking about the Chinese wind turbine manufacturers. Was it? I think it was Goldwind was, um, so, and a few other companies. Do you think that's making a difference or getting a reaction? It's a good question. Um, I don't. I don't think it is yet. I think it's it's something that's making the outlook for these companies a little bleaker, and I think it's creating an, an imperative for these companies to transform and for every day that Siemens Gamisa goes by and its margins are so slim it's another day where project developers across Europe are thinking oh, maybe we will install these uh, these turbines from China I mean we've seen quite a few projects recently installing gold wind turbines most most recently we've seen projects I think using Mingyang turbines in on offshore wind projects in Italy so those projects um, really starting to move towards Chinese turbines where the prices are much lower I think is it's something that's happening so I think Siemens, Siemens Energy are looking at Siemens Greece as being like, if we're going to do this, we need to do this now. We need to, uh, and we need to transform the business. And it's going to be, it's going to be difficult, especially given the, the current climate. But it's it's something that they need to do if they want to, if Europe and Siemens Energy actually want to maintain a solid stake in the wind market and most notably the offshore wind market. I think that's the key for Siemens Gamesa really is that they have got these really high quality, large scale turbines um, that be well suited to floating wind as well. So that's that's where I imagine they'll start to place their focus now is pairing with floating wind developers um, and and making sure that they're the first port of call for these floating wind projects that we're going to see really start to pop up around Europe over the next two, three years in terms of construction. You don't see there being any um, agenda here in consolidating manufacturing into Germany, taking it out of Spain and Denmark and, and trying to make it cheaper. Obviously, they don't... 
the way the the wind industry works is you diversify and you distribute the manufacturing to bring local jobs for where you're installing them. But historically here, we've got a merger of a Spanish and uh, what was a Danish company, which sort of has become German by acquisition by Siemens. So I just uh, wonder if there's any element of cutting costs. Yeah, definitely. I think, and I think being able to making that transition to full ownership makes that cutting of costs easier. It makes it much easier to be like, okay, we're going to shut down this factory here, um, which is maybe a location where your other state uh, shareholders are based uh, and are likely to raise objections about you closing a manufacturing plant. There, I think exactly, it just makes yeah. um, yeah. it makes you more of a, a nimble company, which I think any company needs to be at a key point of transition. Um, look, look at all the the Euro- Europe and American. Um uh politicians how do you save an industry which pretty much you've invented or europeans have invented uh, or, or at least matured um and keep keep ownership of it against the onslaught of chinese price cutting and uh, the fact that the chinese are now starting to export their wind turbines into some of the soft underbellies of africa and latin america so Suddenly, some of your natural markets are being taken away from you. What? And that's the growth area. I know they've got order books that go out five years, but even so, um, what's the long? What's the five-year view on whether these come? Do, do we do we end up seeing investors and seems to me emerging? Do we see GEC falling out of it or being acquired by emerged um, emerged uh, uh, two Europeans? Uh, to fend off the, the Chinese, how do you see it playing out? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think there will be consolidation at some point. Um, I think realistically, um, we've seen all of them struggling. I think only one of the three large Western OEMs actually turned a profit uh, in the past quarter. So, um, I think realistic, and we've seen Chinese companies almost trying to line up the acquisition of the General Electric's wind turbine business have lined up Siemens Gamesa's wind turbine business, obviously. So there is that drive towards consolidation. I think the way that Europe can, I don't want to say save, but they can promote using domestic turbines. I think you can't, we've seen the US try and fail in terms of um, putting tariffs on the imports of Chinese goods. I think the only way you can do that is if you're implementing on a carbon tax and a carbon border adjustment mechanism based on the um, the emission intensity of creating those turbines. That's fine. That's logical to do. Uh, it doesn't punish the the wind industry. It punishes the fossil fuel industry associated to it. And it probably does lean towards promoting um, the development of European turbines, which are uh, generated slightly more efficiently. I think the best thing you can do from a European perspective is is subsidize the production of blade facilities and try and push it that way. So if you're looking at actually promoting the the industry around it, so building these supply chains, that's where I think you can have an impact. So if you're Siemens Energy, Siemens Gamesa looking to, to take people on uh, as a wind turbine engineer, for example, governments could look at this and say, okay, we'll fund the training of these, um, training of people who work in the existing coal industry will fund their training to work in the wind turbine industry. That offsets cost for Siemens Energy, Siemens Gamesa, but it also helps push the government's climate agenda. So it's a good way of tackling it at both ends. I think it's it's a way of, basically what they, the governments need to do is they need to incorporate these large turbine manufacturers um, and these sort of new solar developers uh, into their existing climate agenda, but without it being 
blatantly obvious that they're saying, okay, we're only going to use, we're going to use 90% European wind turbines because that's just a way of pushing up the costs. And I think at this point you do need... I I like the idea of your carbon border adjustment mechanism. Um, You know, I don't know if you noticed last week that that it's going to come in a year earlier. Yes, yeah, it is. And and if it comes in, uh, was that 2025 now? Um, That means we've only got, really, got two and a half years to survive because as soon as you bring in... Uh, steel from uh, a Chinese factory that has used coal to make its electricity, um, the uh, the border adjustment will be considerable, um, especially as if, if Europe gets cleaner and greener sooner. Um, so I think there's there's uh, there is some salvation on the horizon. So that's the issue. Um, that's three or four items from the issue. Um, as uh, there are many more items in the issue. Rethink Energy, uh, the newsletter is uh, free to subscribe to. Go to www.rethinkresearch.biz, click on Energy, and um, sign up for the newsletter. The real gems in what we do is in the paid research. That's all visible on uh, the forecast and data pages and costs just $4,600 for an annual subscription. Um, If you want to... uh, look into this in more detail you can email simon at rethinkresearch.biz and he'll answer any of your queries and that's all we have time for thank you very much for this week's podcast